I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Whoa! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about Batman, a Batman podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Interviews with fans and people, people who Welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Enormous Gravestones. Are you a billionaire with a dead loved one? Why not show how much you miss them with a looming, omnipresent gravestone to really impose over the rest of the cemetery every time you visit? Guys, happy Halloween! And if you're not listening to this on release day, happy not Halloween yet! May this provide you with a reminder that it's my favorite holiday and that it is coming around the corner or very far away. Anyway, we're here to talk about the Scarecrow episode, Nothing to Fear, with the writer, Henry Gilroy. But first, if you just can't get enough spooky Batman stuff from this very podcast, check out episode three of the podcast to hear us chat about Never Fear with the voice of the Scarecrow and reanimator himself, Jeffrey Combs. Also, if you like what you hear, please rate and review the show on iTunes and spread the word to anybody you think might like it. And if you really like the show, you can donate to help keep it going over at patreon.com slash podcast. This is a labor of love and every dollar helps. Plus, cool rewards like your questions asked to people who make Batman. That's fun. All right, let's dig into today's episode, Nothing to Fear, with today's guest, Henry Gilroy. Henry is the co-writer of Nothing to Fear. He also scripted This Little Piggy for Justice League Unlimited in the DC Animated Universe and has written and produced for such shows as Star Wars, The Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, Ultimate Spider-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, and so many more, including a couple of my favorite 90s Tick episodes. Now that you've heard a summary of his IMDb, let's hear from the man himself, who was a real treat. Well, we're doing it. We we already started talking about tires, so I'm just going to springboard from there. How are you? Good, good. Uh, thanks for having me on your show, Justin. Uh, pleasure to meet you. And, and um, uh, yeah, whenever I get a chance to talk about Batman Animated Series, I, I feel very fortunate. Um, I had a limited role as far as writing, but I was actually in the sound um, and editorial department when the series first began. And um, as a matter of fact... Um, Bruce Tim was a storyboard artist on uh, Tiny Toon Adventures, and Eric Radomski was a background uh, painter on Tiny Toons as well. So uh, we used to have dart gun wars while we were working on Tiny Toons. And I remember as we close, got close to the end of Tiny Toons, there was this, this push to what's next. And, and I know uh, because the Batman film had come out, um, there was like, well, let's do a spinoff. Let's do a Batman series. And uh, Bruce started doing some drawings. As a matter of fact, I was in his cubicle. Back then he just had a cubicle. 
when he was inking those first initial designs, it kind of blended the Alex Toth style with the Richard Fleischer Superman style. Yeah. And uh, that it's so amazing that I was like, oh, wow, I was at the studio, but but in the proximity when those designs would, you know, be kind of the, the start of a new whole new renaissance and action adventure animation. Yeah, what were your reactions to it uh, when you popped by or saw them? Oh, I, you know, I used to go, we used to go to lunch all the time and every Wednesday was comic book day. And so, you know, there was a, a, you know, kind of a a condensed group of us who are really into superheroes and that kind of thing. So um, when I saw him, I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. I would love to work on this. And I was still in an editorial department and, and uh, um, Eric had done some design um, his his design ideas for the backgrounds, where rather than paint them on whiteboard, as you probably know, he pay, painted them on that black mat mm-hmm. color and show they did kind of just one test mock up of a color, you know, still of Batman on this black mat. It looked so rich and different and new. It was that Art Deco style, and um, Jim McCurdy was like, "Wow, this looks fantastic. Let's do a you know test." So uh, Bruce storyboarded it. Um, they did the color design, and 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 it was sent up north uh, to. Do, uh, I think it was. I can't remember the studio in Canada to do the promo, but this two-minute promo was done, or maybe it was less than that. Maybe it was ninety seconds. It was basically the same content as the opening title of the series, just looked a little different. And um, ironically, when we recorded that, um, f- really there was no dialogue. It was just punching sound effects. I was the very first voice. Of Batman, really getting punched in the face by a bad guy, just groans, grunts, exactly, right, right. And I think Bruce did the other one of the thugs, and I think Eric was the other thug. So So you're the real Batman. I am the real Batman. I try to tell people this, and people say, "No, no, 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 no." Everybody knows. Get Conroy off these panels. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? (laughs) No, actually, um, and I remember when we did the tests uh, uh, and we're, we're casting the series, and Kevin came on. It was like, wow, he was so the character. You know, his voice was fantastic. So Yeah, I want to back it up a little bit um, just because I'm really interested in the evolution of your career, uh, having started in, like, editorial and, and sound a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're a writer-producer now. I am. Uh, that's a rare transition. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I was going to film school. So while I was working in the sound, uh, at an editorial department at, at Warner Brothers, I would night I would leave and and basically take various uh, writing and film classes around town wherever I could get yeah. you know at seven p.m. after working all day at six p.m. ending the day at six, um, and I I, I I but I knew I wanted to write and um, it's so funny that once the show went into active development, I think probably every day I would put a handful of story ideas underneath. Uh, Bruce's door, hmm. uh, and and I think he got sick of it. Finally, he's like, "All right, fine, write this one," you know, which was the the Scarecrow episode, which I thought was really interesting. But I always intended to work to be a writer, and um, it's just it's a difficult thing to take break in, you know, to, to to write something usually for money. They want to say, "What have you written for money before?" And well, it's like, "Well, we haven't written anything for money." It's the first thing. So you realize um, a lot of people don't know this, but this script. Uh, this Batman animated script, Nothing to Fear, was my very first professional writing gig. What an incredible first job. Oh, my gosh. I feel very fortunate. 
Yeah, very fortunate. And and I had so much to learn. And I look back at it and go, like, oh, man, I wish I could have rewrote this line and rewrote that line. But, um, you know, pretty much the, the story structure, all of it kind of came um, – is there. Uh, but to, to back up, like you were saying, following the career – um, when you work in editorial, you do learn story from a different point of view. Yeah. And so what I was doing most of the time on Tiny Toons and the other Warner Brothers shows is I was cutting together storyboards with sound. So I was really learning to tell story panel by panel visually. And that's something that I, I know both Bruce and Eric appreciated because a lot of times they're used to dealing with the more literary writers, writers who go to you know journalism or who mass came from screenwriting, they came from a different kind of storytelling rather than pictures. And yeah, and this was, was a script-based show. It uh, was. But it, it still feels like there was a huge emphasis on visuals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and Bruce and his, you know, and his directors had a, a lot of leeway for what they, you know, what they could do visually. You know? Was Tiny Toons script or was it board-driven? Oh, or? it was very scripted. And that was definitely, but here's the thing, you really had strong storyboard artists working on that series. Yeah, it feels like it has such strong visual gags, it was like a perfect marriage of both kinds of funny, and I feel like Batman was a very similar type of show. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. The drama was still like beautifully, you know, set up. Each shot was just like its own cinematic <laughs> frame right right yeah every every shot was designed almost like a combo panel and it was clear and elegant and um atmospheric and moody and then you put great shirley walker's great music on top of that right and then yeah. andrea romano's cast and you know uh you know the dynamic staging by bruce and the backgrounds and and uh by eric it's yeah just uh, it's the perfect recipe so what did you have going into Nothing to Fear? Uh, did you suggest a Scarecrow episode, or was it one that they assigned to you? I be- it was one of the stories I put under Bruce's door. So huh. basically, I would write up these five premises. I think at the time, I was still like working editorial. I think I had a dot matrix printer. And, and, um, <laughs> and I remember um, after a few days, Bruce said, wow, I, I like this Scarecrow story. This is a good one to start from. And it, it was just a basic two or three line premise of the scarecrow, you know, is, you know, gassing people in a city. You know, he wants revenge on the college that fired him, blah, blah, blah. And um, kind of a, a, a an early message I got from the kind of supervising producer at the time, Tom Ruger, was he just said, hey, you know, if you're going to write these Batman stories, don't, don't make them about the Joker robbing a paint store or something. Make them about something. And I really tried to take that to heart and and build into this story something very personal to Bruce Wayne, Batman, about his father. Yeah, and, I mean, that's what it's about. Exactly. It's, it's a pretty deep and dark episode. Uh, I mean, you know, throughout the longevity of the show, like, there are certainly some dark episodes. But this is, I think this is one of the defining dark episodes with that iconic, I am vengeance, I am the knight, I am Batman is in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was the third episode to be produced, and I think it was moved back to 10 or something like that, an original airing order or something. But, um, you know, I was I was really influenced by a lot of the, the Doug Munch um, detective comics in the early 80s, like 83, 84, I think, in there. And those really had the Scarecrow as a creepy guy, and the fears were very psychological. And I wanted to, you know... Uh, um, 
bring that out. I thought we haven't seen uh, kind of a key motivator, made a motivator in the series yet for why Batman is Batman, who he is. Um, so let's introduce his father to the to the audience in this kind of interesting way that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, I mean, failure is such a huge. Just failing the people you love as a motivating factor for Batman is is this is what drove the rest of the series. <laughs> Oh, good. Well, I'm I'm glad that yeah, I'm glad it, it you liked it. Uh, so, how did you go about the scripting process? Did you? I mean, like, was there an outline phase, and then you would submit different kind of like drafts of outlines and revisions? Yeah, or? I think I did two versions of the outline, and um, and then we went to script on it. Um, and then right around this time, I think that the the story editor was hired, so I was was officially actually sent to script. Or, or into outline when Sean Catherine Derrick was brought on as the story editor, mm-hmm. and I didn't know her. I hadn't I hadn't worked with her, um, so that was kind of a new, um, you know, interesting experience for me because I was a, a really a new writer, brand new, and I know she had come from I think Hannah Barbera at the time, and she was an experienced story editor. So, um, yeah, it was interesting. It was interesting. And what did you go in for, uh, or what did you go in with? I guess. Uh, to this episode? What were your goals? Um, really, I, I think that I wanted to tell what I would like to be a classic Batman episode that was, you know, superhero, but also something that actually informed the character in a way you haven't seen before. And no one had done that in animation, certainly not dealing with the death of the father. Like the earlier Batman you know, superheroes, cartoons, like the Super Friends, and definitely not, you know, the old 66 Batman. You hadn't really done anything like that. Um, you did get some of the deep kind of dark stuff in the Tim Burton movies, but th- that really actually informed our series to some extent. It really gave a freedom to, hey, we can make Batman a little darker, a little more atmospheric. And that came to uh, Fox going, okay, you know what, we're going to let you guys raise the stakes, and have there be, you know, some life and death situations. Um, I'm, I'm still amazed that the Fox censors in this episode let <laughs> one of the henchmen get so terrified of being bars, he literally jumps to his death. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we did see him fall, I think, into a bonsai tree or something, but I can only assume he's dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, we used to joke about the fact that he fell... Uh, 50 stories onto an uh, I think an awning and then the other guy fell into a bonsai <laughs> yeah. but it was like 20 stories right like so, that's any better yeah. than falling on the ground <laughs> I want to I want to say that I, I go ha- I think it, there wasn't anything in there we just see him fall and Fox is like no 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 you gotta show him land he's, he's live and, and I think uh, Bruce did a, a joke cut in where you see he's in the tree and literally the branches are sticking up out of his ribs and everything. <laughs> and he's like, I'm all right. And he's like, so dead. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's, that was the nature of children's television at the time. Yeah. I mean, it still kind of is. The fact that you, you had a story about a gun um, that actually went on the air and the fact that we actually had characters with machine guns and us loading guns. You actually can't do that stuff now. Yeah, well, the fact that they're firing machine guns, like, and the blimp is, like, you know, at the, in that kind of climax is smashing into the building. Uh, it's pretty intense. And I feel like even in the show, it kind of got dialed back a little bit eventually. Oh, yeah, especially the later episodes, I think. Um, the, the CW, when the show went on, ended up on the CW, there was definitely a 
boy, the show's too serious. It's dark, and and you know uh, we know boys love it, but you know they wanted a broader audience. You know that's why they kind of had the Batman family aspect of it. But. I was surprised that you got away with. For me, one of the scariest moments was when uh, Doctor Long looks at his hands and they're skeleton hands, uh, which is, you know, just the implication <laughs> of death to a child at that age. <laughs> Is so intense, uh, and I love that that's in there. Right. Well, here's the thing that uh, I've always tried to put in every show, and and a lot of times when censors are reading the script, they go, "Oh my gosh, this is terrifying." You see his hands turn into skeletons. They think about it as live action. When you're watching animation, even at a very young age, well, probably not three, but if you're watching an animation, an animated show at age six, you know that there's a separation of difference between a cartoon and live and your reality. Mm-hmm. You you know that difference. Like you never see Elmo uh, in your bedroom. You know you see him on TV talking, but there's a separation between um, you know puppets or animation, especially animation. It's so separated from reality. So I, it's something I always try to remind them. Like remember, this is this is going to be brightly colored and and it's not real. And and. You know, and then we usually argue about what a three-year-old thinks is real for about <laughs> seventeen pages. So, now, what did you ever approach some of these things? Uh, I don't know. I feel like every writer has described their kind of sneaky approach of getting the cool stuff in there that would get by the censors. Oh yeah, absolutely. We we. I mean, gosh, probably every show I've ever worked on. If if for me, I I, I think early on we wanted to make it as intense as we could, but. Really, it's what serves the purpose of the story, and I I wouldn't I'd be feel terrible if I wrote something and you know a kid poured gas and, you know and burned down his house or something I, that that would be terrible if I, I, you know that happened. So I would never want something that's imitable like that. But on the other hand, um, that's how people start fires. So um, yeah, I think nowadays it'd probably be very difficult to do. You know, the scarecrow basically pouring a, a a can of something that says gas on it and lighting it on fire. That's something you'd probably you know give him some fantastical looking flamethrower or something like that. I did like that when Batman showed up in, initially. He's got the gas mask on. Yeah, he's smart. <laughs> yeah, he knows. He gets it. Yeah, he knows what's going on. Uh, there's just like, I mean, there's an implied intelligence, which is cool, but it's not played as like a goofy Adam West, I have everything on my utility belt sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, I, th- I think, um, I mean, that's the kind of the whole idea with the belt is he he is prepared mm-hmm. or he's kind of done his homework. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think I read somewhere that somebody was complaining that um, in that scene – uh, Batman's surrounded by fire and his fire sprinklers come on inside the vault and save him. And uh, the logic was, oh, that's completely not realistic because f- like water doesn't put out a gasoline fire. And I was like, oh, is that actually true? Do you know if that's true or not? I don't know. I didn't question it. Oh, what's interesting though is something that was in the script but didn't make it into um, it wasn't the final script or or the episode was as like as Batman was the, the vision was kind of fading. He managed to take his battering and he flips it up, and it hits the um, the sprinkler and like kind of turns it on. The idea was rather than it kind of the sprinkler bailing him out, 
Right. He, it's motivated I mean? by Batman's ingenuity or a- at least exactly. like a last ditch effort versus oh, he's Deus Ex Sprinklers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I and that was one of those things where I go, oh, it probably was cut for scene count or you know whatever. I mean, if there's always those things. So, but but I still think the scene still works because well, he you know ultimately he he um, you know drove off the scarecrow, so he still kind of won the day. Yeah. I, I mean. How did you describe those visions throughout the the entire episode? They're they're pretty visual demonstrations of like seeing these ghosts and like these kind of wispy you know versions of Thomas Wayne and just like you said, yeah, to see your father, an image of your father, appear out of the flames and you know basically tell, calling you a failure. That's a, a dramatic sort of thing. And if you like Batman and you feel for Bruce Wayne, you identify with him. That's something you identify with. Every single story I've I've tried to write, I've always tried to put some aspect of human reality, whether it's a Transformer I'm writing or it's Spider-Man or Hulk or, you know, I, I've been on Rebel, Star Wars Rebels for the last yeah, four years. Yeah, many a Star Wars project, it seems. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I've always tried to put elements of, you know, the emotional reality of what's um, what's going on between the characters or what's happening in the character. Um, because it doesn't matter if you're a Jedi, if you... You know, or if you're Batman, if you feel like you failed your father, that's something probably every kid can relate to on some level. Yeah, I think it's a perfect crossover between kids and adult television because we're all just dealing with all that old shit forever. <laughs> exactly. And as a kid, it's that much more present and it's that much more heavy because your parents are everything. So I think it's such a it's such an elegant way of like, you know, telling a story that any kind of audience would enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um and so you would describe the visuals, you know, that in a, I feel like some shows are less detailed in it when it comes to the writers or sometimes, you know, you do kind of block it all out but you would describe oh yeah this one absolutely i yeah you know you know we hear the screech of a bat you know and crane turns around in his lab and it's dark and and he sees an image of a bat kind of rise out of the darkness and he you know fades away it's a nightmare's vision you know really in that in that particular case you're what you're trying to do is provide fuel for the storyboard artist inspire him to Mm -hmm turn your words into something visually brilliant. Right. You want it to be clear, but also allow them to play around with it. Oh, absolutely. And actually, I think at the end, at the end of that sequence, when he realizes it's Batman and he falls back and Batman rises up and turns into this demon, I think I even said in you know in the description he should basically turn into the night on bald mountain demon which is one of my favorites we were just talking about that you know the other half of this episode is talking to a fan or somebody who you know watched the episode and that was part of our discussion was hey that looks like chernabog totally chernabog uh and also crane looked like ichabod crane which was from that old sleepy hollow Oh uh, yeah a little bit <laughs> but uh, i wasn't sure how intentional that was um i think probably uh, you know the the great thing about Scarecrow in the animated series is he did evolve. Yeah, yeah, he got more and more terrifying. <laughs> he um, truly did. So I got to hand it to Bruce and the guys um, on that. I love all three recruiting. designs, though. Yeah, they're all cool. I I like the amorphous sock head, um, but because I think back then, you know, I think that it um, it's a little more expressive, but I think it's a little more cartoony. And I think the earlier episodes tend to be a little more cartoony. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, even Crane's head is a little bigger. Yeah. Uh, he, uh-huh. he's, he's a little bit more 
unrealistically kind of weighted. Yeah. But uh, and and the the performance that they would choose for like the goons uh, are like a little more cartoony than what you'd see later, which. I love a dumb henchman. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I have to say I can't take credit for the dumb, dumb henchmen. I, I preferred them to rather be more qu- quiet. I think, but I think um, there is a perception, especially when you're doing a kids show, that if you have dumb henchmen and you have those kind of silly gags, that it kind of takes some of the darkness away. And, sure. and, and so it's not quite as scary um, where I think there was probably less of that in my earlier drafts. So it felt like, was it when you like collaborated afterwards or? Yeah. Well, that was probably, I think that, that that's probably like the input from the story, from the, from the story editor at that point. Well, you know, like probably after I delivered the script, it was like, oh, you know, this is really dark and scary. So let's lighten it up by giving the henchmen a little, you know some jokes now was that something that you implemented or the script is handed off and then it's revised without you um i think i think i was given a note after my first draft to to lighten up some of the stuff and then some of the stuff i didn't i didn't actually see until later i was like oh wacko what what is that me you know what i mean (laughs) so it's like but i think um you know ultimately you know when you and and this is something too that happens when you're whenever you're doing any any action adventure series while well, I'll just say any animated series the first few episodes you're trying to find your footing mm-hmm. you're really trying to figure out what the show is and and I've worked on enough of them to know that um, it's usually around episode six seven um, and there you're like okay now I kind of understand like what the series is it's the tone the reality how things exactly work. like if you think about like I want to say on leather wings was fantastic visually and it kind of gave like a great sample episode but really when you got to like the two-face episodes which were eight and nine i mm-hmm. think you're like oh my gosh this is real and this is some serious stuff yeah the human drama became kind of the center yeah the centerpiece and the, you know all credit to alan burnett um and, you know and bruce uh, on that because the goal always was let's not write down um, and I think that's when Alan came in. Um, let's not write down, but let's really try to um, write stories that we like uh, rather than stories for kids. Right. That you're, you're not talking down to your audience, which kids are smart. Kids are smarter than people ever give them credit for. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's funny. I've been asked that a bunch of times. You know, how is it, you know, you've been writing for 25 years, you know, in animation, you know, children's television. It's like, well, on one hand, I never had to grow up. But on the other hand, I've always write, wrote stories to please myself. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think ultimately kids hate it when you talk down to them. They want to go see James Bond. They don't want to go see baby James Bond. They want to go see James Bond with the adults. So I think that if you aim down at them, they know it and they feel like, you know, they're being patronized. Yeah, so. I think that's a smart note. When it comes to it, since you've been on so many of these shows, and I'm just interested to to hear what you think, like what what do you think are like successful steps to kind of codifying the tone, or I guess overcoming hurdles like that, uh, and locking something in faster? Um, I ah, gosh, I want to say you know sometimes sometimes it's very difficult to do it because it depends on what the mandate from the studio is, right? And sometimes the studio really is like at the mercy of whoever's 
putting up the money from like a licensing standpoint. So it might be, you know, the toy company. So that might dictate a lot of the content. Um, you know, and I'll just give you an example. Like, so I spent the last three years uh, at Lucasfilm on Star Wars and Rebels. And it would, the great thing about that is, is Star Wars has a pre-sold um, quality to it. Um, and people just want really quality stories. So it's really about this making the storytelling as great as you know as you can. And then the last two years before that, I was at Marvel, where I worked on Ultimate Spider-Man, um, Hulk and the uh, Age of Smash, and Avengers, and wrote a couple of DVDs for them. And they're really about like their characters and like you know really um, keeping their characters alive and the consciousness of everyone. You know, and there's definitely a licensing. You know, component to that, and then the two years before that, I was at Hasbro. I worked on Transformers a bit, but I was on GI Joe Renegades um, and uh, Kaijudo. Um, and those two, I mean, and working for a, for a, for Hasbro Entertainment, that generally is that's a toy company you're working for. So their mandate, what's important to them, is going to be different, right? Than if you're working for Marvel or if you're working for Lucasfilm or even you know the WB, it's 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 um, you know at Marvel, you know they know when you do a Spider-Man show, we just basically be true to the character, make it funny, and make the action really good mm-hmm. because the character already is the number one licensed character in the world. They know that there's gonna they're gonna sell sheets and shoes and backpacks and all that. I'm just interested in. How can I tell a Peter Parker story that we haven't seen before, and write some new jokes and and um, you know make it a really entertaining storytelling experience? Yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, comic book character that you've gotten to write for for animation? Like, is there like a childhood dream of a oh character? Oh my gosh! Oh wow! Well, no I mean, I think it's probably every time I work on a new one, it's another dream. Um, you think about it. I've been very fortunate, you know. Um, to think that, <laughs> to think that I would go from my first script being a Batman story with my f- my favorite villain Scarecrow was you know kind of a dream come true, and that was very early. that was the first thing in my career. So, but yeah, I mean, the time I spent at Disney, you know, working on Mickey Donald and Goofy cartoons, I think was really fun too. Oh, that's in a com- amazing. In a completely different way, because I've always been a great fan of animation. And people have said that, oh, well, how, you know, have you ever had this desire to move to live action? It's like, well, I, I'm not really interested in moving to live action so much as I'm just interested in telling the best story I can in whatever medium. And I do love the freedom that you can get in animation for what you can do visually. Cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. And we'll be back in just a second. And we're back sitting down with Henry Gilroy. How are you since this last five minutes uh, <laughs> of us just talking? It's all good. Great. Uh, <laughs> glad to get a chance to talk about animation and, and working on Batman animated series. And um, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great time to be at Warner Brothers Animation. Yeah, what was it like? I guess what was the culture there at the time? Is, is there stuff that you miss? Is there stuff that you don't miss? I don't know. You think about the, the, how talented that crew was. That's a really talented crew. Um, you think about it. You know, even though Bruce Tim is still at Warner Brothers, you know, Eric Radomski went off, um, started those. You know, he went off to HBO, where he did the Spawn series and won Emmys over there. And 
he really started up the this the new Marvel Animation Studios that's you know been putting out shows for for Marvel for about like five years now. Um, you know, Ultimate Spider-Man and uh, Hulk needs to smash and Guardians of the Galaxy and this, the new uh, you know Spider-Man series. So uh, Ronnie Del Carmen, who is one of the storyboard artists, he's uh, you know, at Pixar and been at Pixar for, I think, about 15 years now. Yeah, he co-directed Inside Out. Yeah, exactly. That's right, wild. Right. I remember seeing his boards for, like, Batgirl Returns. Oh, okay. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Super talented. So that crew really was, I think, um, a very high-level, talented crew. You know, Glenn Murakami, you know, who did the original Teen Titans series, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah I think he's working on Ninja Turtles now. Um um, so yeah, just just a, a a really talented group of people. You know, I worked with Paul Dini on and off over the years, and I worked with him over at, at Marvel on Hulks and and Ultimate Spider Man. And you know, he's always been a great collaborator, and he's kind of a legend when it comes to you know writing Batman stories. So he's a real sweet guy too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you've had him on. Yeah, he's he's been on a few times. Oh, uh, great. Uh, he's just nice and yeah. cool. Always, he seems to really care about his characters. Oh, he does. Like, very passionately. Yeah. Uh, which I really respect. I like. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about The Tick as well. And I know that this is only, like, what, two episodes that are at least on your IMDb? Uh, I think so. You're right. I want to say I worked on a third one, but I can't remember. Let's see. A clone is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, uh, let's see. The Mucus Tick and then Proto Clown. Uh-huh. And I worked on a third one. Oh, my gosh. Boy, you're asking me to go back in time. I can't remember. I think maybe I just worked worked on an outline. I can't remember, though. Well, I remember being such a huge fan of The Tick concurrently with Batman. Uh, so the fact that I'm realizing you worked on both of them, I just wanted to know what that experience was like. I mean, at that time, it was just an indie comic kind of turned into this big cartoon. Yeah, and what's weird is um, I think that that series probably could have ran for five years. I think it was so awesome. Mm-hmm. And and so many of the ideas, I think, came out of the head of Ben Edlund. Yeah. he's He was really the genius behind it. And uh, when I got an opportunity to come in and collaborate, I was just trying to write jokes and keep up with Ben because so much of what the tick is like lives in Ben's head that – you know, I feel it's like a, you know, a David E. Kelly kind of situation, you know, or an Aaron Sorkin sort of situation where I, I, who else can write that that stuff except for Ben? So, um, you know, and I know he's had a couple collaborators over the years. So, but um, I was fortunate enough to uh, write some gross out jokes for the Mucus Tick episode. Yeah, so. I think the Tick versus the Uncommon Cold is the first episode of the Tick that I personally saw. That was my introduction. Uh, oh yeah, so oh that's great. Yeah, so that probably lived li- lived in your head for a long time. My favorite line from that I wrote was, um, "Oh, you would do you would do battle with the nose of your birth," which <laughs> is such a just a ridiculous concept. God, it must be so fun to write the tick. <laughs> also, I just remember him sneezing out, or he sucks in yes. the mucus tick as the climax. Yes, and it is so vivid. <laughs> it's it's like a. It's a real visceral memory. <laughs> and I remember when we got to outline, the producer, Art Vitello, wasn't happy with the uh, – I think we just had a regular – I, I want to say uh, the Mugus Tick got th- thrown onto a – the fight was on the roof. Got thrown onto a antenna, like a television antenna or something, and um, – uh, uh, 
um, there's some electricity or something that gets plugged into it and it's like basically fried or something like that. And Art was like, you know, I, I think there's got to be something that's just this is the typical superhero you know, sort of ending, you know, how you get a, how you get rid of the bad guy. And it seems like that always happens to Venom. You know, Spider-Man always electrocutes him. Yeah, he is so, always right? He's always, he's always yeah, electrocuted. Yeah, that symbiote screams and then it, like, kind of wriggles yes. away. Yeah, or blasts <laughs> apart, but there's always the one piece that goes down a drain, yep. right? Like, you know, it's like that that stupid one little piece of, of Venom. Um, but, yeah, so you could say the music stick was way before Venom. But, uh, anyway, so he's like, we need something better. And I go, what if he gets on it and he like just snorts them up like a giant loogie and yeah. it was one of those things where like oh my gosh the the network will never let us do it let's do it and then it happens and then it happens so. well that's what i love yeah. i think it's very rare and hard to do action comedy uh and it's i think the tick is like what inspired me to love it and try to make it you know as much as humanly possible and it is those like wonderful you know final moments where it's like okay this is a cool action beat but it's also very funny (laughs) it also feels satisfying to see like yeah of course this is how a big booger would be (laughs) defeated i also loved the action figure as a kid loved clear plastic so you know i have that i still have it mint on the card it's a good one well you got both of those figures i think thrakazog or yeah thrakazog too yeah um i remember and there's also the there's not a clown one, but there's I think there's the I Love Wheat shirt. T- yes, there is. I remember there were a lot of tick variants with like funny T-shirts, like an I, I Dig Dinosaur Neil. Thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I the, the proto clown, which is basically the Hulk is a clown. That episode um, <laughs> was because I hate I just hate clowns. I just hate clowns. So you're not alone. I think. Yeah, a lot of a lot the of world people. is terrified, and I'm sorry to all those clowns out there. Well, who the are problem is, is like even that movie. That movie, it is such a big success because people just, you know, hate clowns. And and that end fight where those kids are literally beating up a clown with a hitting a clown with a shovel and pipes for like 15 minutes. It seems like it's. 15, I found that very satisfying to watch that. <laughs> even when I felt like, gosh, if this was a real clown, this would be some terrible murder that these kids did. Luckily, it was, uh, you know, some sort of awful uh, interdimensional entity that preys on people's fear. <laughs> right. Or, I don't know, what, whatever they ended up calling it in the new one. I don't think they really outlined what he was. They're saving it. <laughs> oh, for the next next yeah. movie. I hope it's not the giant spider. <laughs> They're going to use the same no, stop-mouse spider. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was so disappointed. That. Well, the first half of the miniseries, I think, is like, all the scary stuff really works. Yes. And then the set, the back half is like, okay. Are, like how many shots are we in the library and the, and the, and the shutters get blown open and there's books, pages turning and the wind. There's a lot. There's a lot of that crap, right? There's a lot, but this one we'll see. Okay. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, back to just, just to kind of wrap things up. I'm, I'm curious. Are there any... Well, one thing I want to know, actually, is what were the other pitches that you slipped under Bruce's door? Do you remember any of the other episodes oh, that didn't get made? Or Let's see. Um, I did I did basically pitch him a Rashomon episode. Um, which they went, eventually did. Yeah. Uh, somebody else wrote it. Um, uh, I pitched him a story idea that I stole from the comics, which was a... Um, um, the Rashomon episode I pitched was basically the bad guys um, sitting around, and actually, I I don't I didn't ever, I didn't get story credit for it, but um, Alan <laughs> Alan paid me for the premise, 
Um, and that was the almost got him story. Oh man! But honestly, Paul Paul did a fantastic job writing writing it. I just I just wrote a one pager. But um, that's amazing. That's where the idea starts, though. Yeah, yeah. So um, but, fan favorite. But uh, you know, there is like there. Uh, you know, it's entirely possible he never saw it. And good ideas come down that you're all working on the same thing or whatever. You know, it happens. I did another one, a similar idea, which was. Um, um, it was basically, uh, about kids talking about, um, their, ex- like who they think Batman is, the, the different mythological aspects of it. Oh, him. cool. Which they also and did, they did that off your ideas. Way later, <laughs> way later. And that actually, I basically had known it was done in the comics earlier by Dick Coriano. Right. Legends of the Dark Knight <clears throat> was the episode that they Yeah. Had. And, and it, and it had been done in the comics Probably a couple of times, so I, I I couldn't take credit. I was like, hey, hey, this is a great idea for yeah, a story. Those are cool big swings for initial episode pitches. Um, and it was definitely later later on in the series okay. to kind of pitch those kind of stories. But uh, some of the earlier ones, um, I did I did work on a story called Penguin Pictures Presents, and this is a story that actually didn't go. Um, and it was done. I can't remember who wrote the first original script, but I had actually done some rewrite work on it. And it was a story about um, um, Penguin, who basically had a movie studio in Gotham City. And um, gosh, I should have dug it out and tried to find the outline because it would probably have cracked you up. But I think that that was kind of one of the early stories that uh, didn't didn't go off. But it was kind of a fun. Uh, what uh, was his scheme? He was just making. <clears throat> I want to say he was basically, it was it was the, the I want to say the rough version of the story. It was sort of like the producer's plot. <laughs> it was kind of like he was getting all this money and he was using the money. His movie studio was a money laundering operation. I would love to see a producer's by way of you know the Penguin <laughs> episode. Absolutely, <laughs> uh, I feel like Penguin didn't quite ever get his due. There were there was one real solid episode in the initial run, but it was tough to it felt tough to write a Penguin episode. Yeah, I felt they did better on on later series. When it was with more him. like I'm a legitimate businessman kind of stuff. Exactly, that seemed to do be, like be better. I, I I did some work for um, uh, up north at Telltale Games on their their Batman series. And I thought they did a great job um, for how they, you know, reintroduced the penguin. But um, I think part of the problem is is the the penguin animated versus what um, Tim Burton was doing with the penguin in the movie. Right. Um, that was like a huge kind of like disconnect. And you notice like the I don't know if you've ever seen that thing about how how uh, kind of Batman got. Or how why Tim Burton didn't get the third Batman was because of what he did with a penguin. Mm-hmm. Like McDonald's wanted this fun penguin toy, and it looked nothing like Danny DeVito. Yeah, you got a soiled man murdering. in a onesie. Oh my gosh. A black bile. <laughs> yes. like, yeah, you've seen that video probably, right? Uh, About it's that. crazy. It's it's amazing, but you go, oh yeah. And now I understand. It's like oh, there they, they there was a real disconnect for how to handle that character. So I also wanted to like ultimately that's partially why. Um, it didn't work in the animated series was like, well, let's just, you know. Yeah, it was a weird middle ground between like, you know, elegant kind of foppish or, or holier than thou kind of guy, but he still felt like a, a freak. Right, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Or, it's, and it's like, how is this guy a threat to Batman? Yeah. You know, it, it, that was the, the, the trick in him. So 
Well, I would have loved to have seen your episode. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, me too. I gosh, I honestly, I should have done some more research to try to dig it out and read it. So next time. Yeah, absolutely. And since then, you've been working on all of the things you've kind of talked about. Uh, is there any anything you've learned on Batman, being that it was your first job that you've taken with you, I don't know, through these years? Um, I think kind of uh, just what we were talking about at the beginning of just kind of stay true to yourself and, and really just try to, if anything, and, and actually this is something I've always tried to follow, is the story is king and the best idea in the room wins. And and really about putting your ego aside, and just trying to just try to tell the best. Because if you if your writing is in service to the characters and not what your personal vision is, you're you'll always, at least in my opinion, have a a, a better. Um, you'll always tell a stronger story. And I, I I think there are some filmmakers who their vision is so unique and so profound, and their voice is so strong that while you really do want to hear what they have to say and you really want to see their films. Um, um, and I, I was thinking about that recently about how, oh, yeah, I've worked on all these giant franchises, um, you know, Timon and Pumbaa and Mickey Donald Goofy and, um, you know, the Mass Effect characters for Bioware and obviously Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi and Ultimate Spider-Man, Peter Parker, you know, Iron Man, um, Black Panther, Hulk, I mean, but not just like fleeting, but 26 episodes, 50 episodes, you know, we did, you know, I worked on 40 episodes. Well, and also these Star are Wars. things that people will, you know, like myself, like my introduction to Batman was the Burton movie, but in 60s, you know, 66 and, and that kind of stuff. But really was the animated series that defined it. Like animation is kind of what's defined my interpretation of these. And there are people who are going to grow up having only seen your version of it and then dig into the other stuff, which oh, is very cool. Yeah, we, we like to talk about even on Rebels, you know, because we're going on four years or whatever. Um, you know, y- you have Thanksgiving, which is every year, year and a half or whatever, you get a Star Wars movie. Now that's like Thanksgiving, where it's like you look forward to uh-huh. it. There's the turkey, and there's the ham, and there's pie, and the stuffing, in, and all of the good stuff. And then, like, okay, so but how does Rebels compare with that, or Clone Wars compare with that? Well, if you think about it, Rebels is kind of like your weekly In and Out burger. It sustains you. I mean, people love In and Out too. Uh, exactly <laughs> for your Star Wars, though. It's your Star Wars In and Out. It's like basically, it's satisfying. And you can't wait because you know you're going to get it next week. But you got to wait till December to get that big turkey dinner of Last Jedi, right? Look, and if you're going to have honest, turkey like, dinner. I want that big In and Out <laughs> dinner. I want that marathon of In and Out burgers, please. Uh, we're not sponsored by In and Out, but if you're listening and want to send free old hamburgers my way, feel free. We should probably say, hey, In and Out, uh, you know, we, we mention you all the time um, in this way. Um, um, because I think that that it keeps the characters alive, and it keeps care. And, and like you said, it's like, oh yeah, your exposure to these animated characters is really kind of what fed your interest in them, and you wanted to see more. Well, and in television, you get more time with those characters. Mm-hmm. You get to dig into things more, and and there's something very cool about that. And it fleshes them out, and it rounds them out, so you care about them more when you see the next movie. And I'm sure the the companies <laughs> that make the money from that really like that, <laughs> but it's very cool to get to write that. Uh, it's really cool to get to dig into that and actually kind of shade them in a more nuanced way. Oh yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I, I yeah, and, and I, you know I appreciate that you noticed that. Um, 
that you you don't want to be repetitive, you know, and it's tricky when there's already been however many episodes of Batman stories. Um, How do you tell a new anything story in all of those? Yeah, it's it's difficult. It's franchises. (laughs) It's true. And even now, you think about, you know, Batman animated series. um, You know, since then, there's been the Batman and Beware the Bat and Batman Raven the Bold. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are all like unique and different Batman stories. But, you know, it's like I think Spider-Man's on its ninth series. I think the eighth series, the Ultimate Spider-Man, ran, it's the longest, ran 104 episodes. Wow. That's a that even right there. That's a lot just for one version of that. So and that's then to a dive lot. into another one, <laughs> and they're right into another one exactly. And it's like, um, but there's something evergreen about those characters that you, every generation coming up, just oh yeah, that's their version of it. You know, I, I feel I feel really excited for the Star Wars fans right now because they think they're getting that. There's going to be kids who are like, oh yeah, Kylo's my favorite, you know, and I love Ray. And and I I I love that actually that because you know we didn't have that you know we had well Luke you, you got know, this Christmas special yeah. <laughs> Luke Luke kind of you know he got to see his dad's face and you know and you obsessed over those same images exactly over and, over and like maybe some action <laughs> figures that were of characters that were in the background and, right exactly and I wrote you know tons of those comic books you know for a bunch of those characters for a long time and um yeah you know I I feel I feel fortunate to have been able to contribute to the mythologies of these. I really feel when you have a character like Batman, who's been around for as long as he is, he becomes almost the property of everyone. And when you've had enough creators touch him and do their version of him, it's it's no longer, oh, well, it's no longer Warner Brothers Batman. It's really the mythology that belongs to the world. And I feel... You know, that's kind of definitely happened with Star Wars, where Star Wars is, I think, the most important cultural uh, mythology of the of the America. And what I mean by that is the fact that you can put on a sitcom, just about any sitcom, and anybody can say, this is not the salad you're looking for or whatever. And, and everybody knows what that joke is. Everyone knows what that joke is. Or if you just mentioned the Death Star in a joke, everyone knows what it is. So it's a sort of situation where it's it's transgressed popular entertainment. And that movie's f- 50 years old? 40 years old. Yeah. 40 years old. So 40 years old. Um, and that says something about, oh, my gosh, wow. Um, yeah, it's it's gone. It's transgressed. It's not transgressed. Uh, it's transcended, I think, what you would say, like, well— um, you know, pop culture, and it's become it's become a part of who we are in our society. Yeah, I mean, it's a language and a vocabulary, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, so. thanks so much for doing the show. This has been great. Oh, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. All right, that's it. All right, that's the show. Please, if you liked what you heard, rate and review us on iTunes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at BTAS Podcast and me at Hey Justin. Donate to the show at patreon.com slash BTAS Podcast. 
Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted and made by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is the booming voice of the podcast. Andrew Seeley is our show producer, and Matt Brousseau recorded and edited this interview, along with Yusong Liu, who helped coordinate. Thanks to Henry for doing the show, and thank you, thank you, thank you to This American Life producer, Tori Malatia, who followed me to a tender greens and interrupted me mid-meal, honestly, to tell me, It's lucky your father didn't live to see what you've done to his good name. He'd have died of shame. Yeah, I can't sugarcoat this one, Tori. That was incredibly inappropriate and rude, and I'm not sure where that leaves our friendship. All right, tune in next Thursday when we dive into a different episode of Batman with a brand new guest, baby. 